Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell. National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hello, Darren. We're recording on Tuesday, 23 August today, though we won't publish this episode for a few days at least. As it turns out, this is the 101st episode of this podcast, with our 100th episode coming out last week, where we had the privilege and the thrill of interviewing Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Penny Wong. Alan and I plan on being bit self-indulgent towards the end of today's episode by reflecting on our experiences and what we have learned across the past four years. But before we do, there is one story looming above all lately that will be the major focus today, Taiwan, which has dominated headlines since the US House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi, second in line to the presidency, of course, after the vice president, visited the island on the 2nd of August. So we've decided to grapple with the Taiwan issue head on. Following that, we'll revisit Australia-China relations for a quick update against the backdrop of China's ambassador to Australia giving a speech and taking questions at the National Press Club. Now, I don't think we've ever made Taiwan a central focus before, Alan. It's certainly come up from time to time. And one episode I remember is that episode 84 from October of last year. But to do it properly, I think, before we get to the events of the past few weeks, I feel we should put our own cards on the table. So a two-part question, Alan, to get started. First, as we often do, can we get a bit of history of the Taiwan issue through the lens of Australian foreign policy? Of course, Taiwan's history spans its Indigenous origins, European settlements, the Qing dynasty and Japanese occupation. But the present day issue emerges out of the Chinese Civil War. So how have Australian governments typically approached what we know today as the Taiwan issue? And second, what is your own starting point, or dare I say model, for analysing these questions? Well, we did promise the foreign minister models in the biggest episode. Uh, let me begin with the history, though, because I've been surprised at how ahistorical some of the recent discussion in Australia about China and Taiwan has been. After the victory of Mao Zedong and the communists in October 1949 in the Chinese Civil War, as you said, and the withdrawal of the nationalist forces of Chiang Kai-shek to the island of Taiwan, both sides continued to claim sovereignty over all China. The um, historian James Curran, in his book, Australia's China Odyssey, which I'm going to come to uh, back to in a couple of weeks in our reading, listening, watching segment, sets this out very well. And there are other things you could consult, like, for example, a book called Fear of Abandonment. But maybe I mentioned that before. Maybe once or Any, twice. Anyway, anyway, the Labor government of Ben Chifley toyed with the idea of recognising the new communist government, but it hadn't done so until it was replaced by Robert Menzies and the coalition. 
uh, Britain, uh, Australia's Asian Commonwealth partners like India, Pakistan and Ceylon recognised the PRC and Menzies did indeed think about it. But the United States was opposed and Australia at that time had bigger stakes in uh, its search for a new security pact, what would later become ANZUS, as it was trying to, uh, that it was trying to negotiate with Washington. So the moment passed and Australia continued to recognise the nationalists on Taiwan as the legitimate government of China. We didn't establish a diplomatic mission there, however, until 1966, very belatedly really, as it was becoming probable by then that Beijing would soon take over the China seat in the United Nations. Uh, when Gough Whitlam established diplomatic relations with the PRC uh, finally in 1972, the negotiations revolved principally around Taiwan, around the wording of Australia's formal acceptance that there was only one China and the timing of the removal of the Taiwanese mission from Canberra. Um, Ch Australia acknowledged uh, China's position that Taiwan was one of its provinces. And as we you know, now know very well, Whitlam's move coincided with a shift in the American position with the announcement of Nixon's visit to Beijing, a shift that hadn't been foreshadowed to Australia. Eventually, Australia established a non-official representative office in Taiwan, as the Taiwanese did here, but the focus uh, was on basically on the economic relationship. Australia was really a strong supporter of engaging Taiwan in the region's economic institutions, and the Keating government fought hard to have it accepted by China as a member of the APEC economic community. Um, it was really the, uh, the, the switch in uh, Taiwan from martial law to, uh, to democracy in the years 1987 to 1996 that changed the nature of um, public perceptions here. But even so, Australia's core interest remained doing what we could to preserve peaceful relations across the Taiwan Straits by ensuring that the existing situation was maintained. So that meant Taipei refraining from making any claim to independence and Beijing making no efforts to retake the island by force. So from Australia's point of view, the Taiwan issue, as you frame it, has really been over time more a cross-straits issue. And that's my starting point. Australia's interests, which for me are the avoidance of catastrophic war and the consequent collapse of the international economy, together with a desire to maintain the best possible options for the people on Taiwan, are best served by the indefinite continuation of the current situation into the future in the hope that over time something changes and other outcomes become conceivable again. It might not happen, but it's better than any possible alternative. And I note that according to the most recent polling just a month or so ago from Taiwan's uh, National uh, Chengxi University, it's also overwhelmingly the preferred position of the people of Taiwan. So what about you, Darren? I haven't given you a model. <laughs> what, what's your Taiwan model? Well, I think I should start with a disclaimer first, because for me, this is 
one of the most intractable issues in international affairs and requires such a breadth and depth of expertise that I feel even more out of my depth than usual in grappling with it. But it's as important as it is intractable. So I think all of us need to sort out our views on it. One of the most famous articles in security studies is titled Rationalist Explanations for War. And it's written by James Fearon in the 1990s. And it observes that because war can be so risky and so devastatingly costly, you would think that there are negotiated settlements that both sides would prefer over the gamble of fighting an, an armed conflict. Fearon then theorizes three reasons why states would still prefer to fight, and one of them he calls issue indivisibilities. The simple fact that some issues are zero-sum, and there is no peaceful resolution, no way of dividing up the pie that is more preferable to both sides than fighting for the whole pie. Now, as you say, Alan, the Taiwanese want to retain their current way of life, and until recently, China has essentially been able to tolerate that. But ultimately, the two sides seem to want fundamentally opposite things, which would make a negotiated settlement impossible. So in building a model, I see only really three ways this can ultimately end. One, the Taiwanese change their minds. Two, the Chinese change their minds. Or three, there is war. Now, that's just background context, so let me offer up my model. But this model is a bit different because I'm going to start by positing interests that are imbued with normative content and could therefore be contestable. So the model has three pillars. Pillar number one, um, and this is similar to what you said, Alan, is that we should be trying to advance two roughly equal core interests. One, giving voice to the Taiwanese people and weight to their interests. To me, it seems beyond clear that they do not want to follow the path of Hong Kong, or worse, even if China could have persuaded them that unification was an attractive option, Beijing's management of Hong Kong has really extinguished that possibility. Two, avoiding war, as you said, Alan, which means using every tool of statecraft available to prevent fighting. So that's pillar number one. Pillar number two starts with the idea that over the past few decades, really since the last crisis in the 1990s, basically both those two interests have been achieved, and let's call this period the status quo. However, these two interests can come very quickly into contradiction, which means a strategy needs to try to forestall that contradiction from manifesting. And for me, that requires a combination of two strategic approaches. First, deterrence the promise that China will bear unacceptable costs should it choose to use force. And second, reassurance, the promise that China will not bear unacceptable costs if it continues not to use force. That's pillar number two. And pillar number three is the observation that right now we are not doing a good job of either deterrence or reassurance. And let me try and explain why. To begin, deterrence requires Taiwan to defend itself. And my understanding is that there is much more the Taiwanese could be doing, especially in military reform. And really, they may need to be pressured by their friends to do more. 
I also accept that an effective deterrent requires providing material support to Taiwan to boost its capacity for self-defense. However, deterrence is, for me, also about broadening the group of states that would be willing to join a coalition to impose costs on China should they invade. And I'm talking well beyond the military domain. I don't see enough effort in particular right now to try to get our region on board. Just for clarification, Darren, when you say beyond the military, do you mean including the military? In other words, are you calling for Australia to join a military coalition to defend Taiwan? Or if you mean deterring in other ways, I'd be interested to know just what Australia and other regional states could do. Surely the only thing that could possibly deter China from action if the Taiwanese declared independence is the nuclear power of the United States? That's a good question. Uh, so to begin, I, I do mean including the military, uh, but I do not support a Taiwanese declaration of independence, but that's part of the reassurance issue. So let me try to reformulate my position on deterrence here, um, bearing in mind that the goal is to keep these two potentially contradictory interests from coming explicitly into contradiction with each other. First, there needs to be a strong military deterrent against the use of force. Second, that deterrent must start from the Taiwanese themselves, but the US obviously has a vital role. Third, Australia should support the provision of material assistance to boost Taiwan's deterrent capability. Fourth, an effective deterrent strategy, however, ought to broaden its focus to include non-military deterrents. And I'm thinking especially so trying to build or trying to um, yeah, drive regional support for the idea that the use of force is unacceptable to resolve this issue. I mean, do I have concrete ideas, you ask? I, I don't. <laughs> um, and I'm far from certain this line of inquiry can work. You may be right. It may be possible that the only thing driving China's military calculus is whether the PLA can actually achieve its military aims and regional responses or economic costs could be irrelevant. But I'm not certain that's true either, hence my interest in exploring that idea. And finally, on deterrence, look, we'll get to this later, but I, I agree with the current government, um, Australian government, that Australia should not entertain hypotheticals like you suggested, Alan. So I don't support an explicit declaration by the Australian government now that we would join a military coalition in a hypothetical scenario. And that's also been the US's long-standing position, albeit one that's been stretched a bit in recent months, as we may discuss. So that's sort of the, the, the deterrence pillar. But before I get to the reassurance part, Alan, I want to get some more detail from you now in response to that. You said it's in Australia's interest for in the indefinite continuation of the current situation into the future, and I agree with that. Do you see deterrence playing a role in supporting that continuation? And if so, who should provide it? Well, fair point. Uh, deterrence does play a role, but as, as I said before, uh, in my view, only US deterrence matters. Um, you know, the Republic of Korea or Australia or anyone else is not going to uh, deter uh, China. If, if you are suggesting in what you just said, about Australia, uh, Australia supporting the provision of material assistance to boost Taiwanese deterrent capability. 
that we should provide Taipei with military equipment, then I disagree. We haven't done that before. Uh, unlike Ukraine, where we have uh, where we have provided such assistance, we do not recognise or deal with Taiwan as a sovereign nation, and that would be the largest shift in Australia's position since 1972. And I have no doubt it would cause the strongest possible reaction from China. And just back a bit, another issue where we disagree, I think, is in the assertion in your model that what you call the core interests for Australia of avoiding war and giving voice to the Taiwanese people um, are roughly equal. Now, they're certainly not roughly equal for me. Not all good things rate equally highly, and saving thousands and perhaps millions of deaths in war rates higher for me than the voice of the uh, Taiwanese people. Yeah, good. That's a, a clear difference between us. Um, and well spotted on my language there. I did use this phrase roughly equal and, and roughly is doing a lot of work. So let me try and clarify. My motivation for giving them roughly equal billing is my worry that if one's overwhelming focus is avoiding war, then there is a temptation, I think, to backwards induct from that laudable objective to ultimately concede the issue to China. And that temptation becomes very powerful. And if you do that, there's no room for deterrence anymore. And look, I don't want to get into a debate about that timeless ethical dilemma known as the trolley problem, as almost by definition, reasonable people can disagree about that. But what I do think is there must be room for deterrence, since that's how we preserve the status quo that you also want protected. To build an analytical model in which deterrence against the use of force is taken seriously, to me then, actually requires locating the aspirations, the dignity, and the freedoms of the Taiwanese people much more centrally. On your point about material assistance, again, I chose my words carefully. I said we should support the provisions of material assistance to Taiwan, which practically then means to be in favour of US and other Western arms sales. I certainly accept your argument that the radical departure of Australia doing so would be unwise because it would be destabilising and it would undermine reassurance. But I do think still we need to be more creative to find ways to broaden this concept of deterrence, to deter aggression in the non-military domain, to make it clear that the use of force is not acceptable. And I don't have good ideas, but my hunch is that it involves a broader regional recognition and signalling to China about this, and that's where I see more thinking to be done. Okay, well, let's leave deterrence there and consider now the other half of my model, which is reassurance. And to me, this is about understanding what China's short-term grievances are, which is essentially an erosion by Washington of its long-standing position on Taiwan and moving, it seems, ever so subtly towards actively promoting Taiwanese independence. To solve that, the US itself needs to define with much more precision what their modern 2022 policy is, what they will do and will not do in a way that tries to make clear both that the use of force is unacceptable, but that Beijing has acknowledgeable grievances, especially arising from a sloppy attitude, if we think of Biden's so-called gaffes, or in the case 
um, of the Trump administration members an outwardly destructive attitude towards maintaining a delicate equilibrium. Well, and my comment here is that I think you give insufficient weight to the nature of China's grievance. The grievance is not that the Americans have been a bit sloppy in their attitudes towards the equilibrium, but that China does not control Taiwan, which uh, it regards as inalienably part of Chinese territory. Hmm. Look, that grievance has been present for over 70 years. Um, a few episodes ago, you recommended reading Hugh White's latest quarterly essay. In that essay, he does, like you suggest, place much more weight on China's grievances. And if I understand his argument correctly, he actually thinks that China's interests here and the resolve that comes from it will actually be decisive in determining how this plays out. And then he concludes with real clarity by saying, quote, the best way out of this predicament for America is to abandon ambiguity and acknowledge, frankly, that it cannot and will not defend Taiwan with armed force. And the best path for Australia is to urge America to do that and tell the Americans plainly that we will not support them in a war over Taiwan. Now, I disagree with that argument because it contradicts the first of the two core interests I outlined. For me, therefore, and this is getting very complicated, this means that recognising, acknowledging and responding to Beijing's grievances cannot just collapse into giving up on Taiwan, as White proposes. For me, then, effective reassurance has to offer less than that, and I think it starts with consistency in US policy. You know, but this is a wager, right? It's, and it's a high-stakes wager that effective reassurance that means giving up less than Taiwan itself is possible and can achieve some kind of stable balance. Alan, when you talk of giving sufficient weight to China's grievances, is Hugh White's argument what you have in mind? Or if so, what does sufficient weight look like? Okay, my, my language is a bit ambiguous there. Um, by giving insufficient weight, I mean that our analysis doesn't always take into account the depth of China's sense of grievance. And I would argue that that's not just the CCP, it's much broader uh, than that. And what that means for how far it's willing to go to preserve its claims to Taiwan. On, now, on, on Hugh's arguments, I've, um, I am by profession and probably psychological disposition a foreign policy analyst rather than a strategic analyst. That is, I'm a shades of grey person who believes that our job is to manage our way through the swampy and dangerous terrain of the international landscape in whatever way we best can, and that the art of statecraft is to accomplish that with as much of your interests and values intact as possible. If Hugh's argument in the essay that when it comes to the crunch, the US will not be prepared to go to war with China over Taiwan is correct, if he's right in that, then that seems like a sensible policy for Washington. But as he goes on to say, uh, and I'm quoting him here, this does not mean we should, in effect, tell America to leave Asia. It's plainly in our interests for America to preserve the strongest possible strategic role in our region that is consistent 
with a stable non-adversarial relationship with China. So I agree with that. Mm, it's just so complicated, isn't it? I mean, I look, I found that a productive discussion. It, it forced me to think about what I actually believe on this issue. But no matter your model and your views, there are going to be flaws, you know, and ways that others can criticise you because it's such a fraught issue. I mean, even in what I proposed, um, one problem with my concept of deterrence is how do you draw the line on what unacceptable behaviour is? Should we be deterring actions that are short of force, like in the grey zone, for example, which China has achieved some mastery? And then I also can see problems with my concept of reassurance because it really becomes less useful if we go back to Fearon's argument about issue indivisibility. It becomes less useful the more Beijing begins to prefer fighting than anything else that isn't China's full control over Taiwan. So even as I make my views, and, and they're genuine ones, I can see the criticisms, you know, in my mind. I'm debating them in my mind and going, what do I do? Um, but look, look, there is one thing I'm, I, I am sure of, and this is before we get to the Pelosi visit. I've read and seen many um, contributions to the debate in Australia. Um, um, and, you know, people have views on the alliance. They have views on our relationship with China, about our interests and our values. And I really believe that if one wants to put forward a theory um, or a policy program on these big questions, you simply have to have a clear position on Taiwan. And I've seen many, many contributions that try to fudge or elide the Taiwan question, which for me really does undermine one's overall argument. So Hugh White neither fudges nor elides, and that's helped me crystallise my model and indeed my disagreements with him. But let's move from the, the theoretical to the practical with the Pelosi visit. Now, the last visit by a US speaker was in 1997. And Pelosi um, this year was reported to have planned to visit in April as part of a, a broader regional tour, but postponed after contracting COVID-19. A more recent regional visit was confirmed in late July, but no one was certain she'd visit Taiwan until her plane was literally in the air. And I confess, I wasted about an hour of my life um, being one of the apparently 700,000 people who were live tracking the rather unusual flight path her plane took from Malaysia to Taipei. Pelosi tweeted that her visit was a sign of the US's unwavering commitment to supporting Taiwan's vibrant democracy. President Biden had previously cautioned against the trip, saying the US military had assessed it not to be a good idea right now. And debate has raged online and in, and in press between those who saw it as an important act to support Taiwan and refuse to be intimidated by Beijing and those who saw it as being unnecessarily provocative with little concrete gained. We'll get to the Chinese response in a minute, Alan, but can I ask first, prior to the visit happening, did you think it was a good idea? I thought it was a lousy idea, uh, as reportedly did the Biden administration, as you note. Uh, it damaged US interests by suggesting that the administration was too weak to deter even a member of its own party, uh, albeit from a different branch of government, from visiting Taiwan. It did no good for the people of Taiwan, but it was exceptionally useful for Beijing, which had an ideal excuse to exercise its forces and demonstrate its power in the Straits. Mm. Yeah, the main reason I find models useful is they structure my approach to practical policy questions like this one. 
So I also didn't think it was a good idea. And I want to recommend an op-ed by my good friend, Zach Cooper, and Bonnie Glazer in the New York Times, which made the argument quite succinctly. But simply put, from my perspective, applying my model, it was not helpful because I don't assess it contributed to deterrence and it absolutely undermined reassurance. There is, I think, an interesting question about whether the symbolism of the visit matters. Applying my model, I'd want to know what the link is between the audience for the symbols and achieving deterrence or reassurance. Does or can symbolism increase a deterrent? I can't honestly see how. I think some symbolic actions might have a chance of increasing deterrence if they're carried out by countries that had previously stayed out of the Taiwan question, because that could signal to Beijing that these countries were increasingly viewing China's actions with disapproval. But the symbolism from a US official visiting does not change anything, I think. Finally, look, I get the argument that not going would have risked giving Beijing the impression that it could use intimidation to set the terms of US engagement with Taiwan. But I would prefer pushing back against that idea through doing things that actually concretely increase deterrence rather than symbolism. Now, turning to, to Beijing's reaction, they were, of course, furious um, with what the Chinese foreign ministry described as an act that seriously infringes upon China's sovereignty. There was a very strong military response, which included the largest live fire drills ever conducted, including ballistic missiles fired into Taiwanese territorial waters and also separately waters in Japan's claimed exclusive economic zone. There were military flights that came much closer um, crossing the median line um, to the island of Taiwan than usual and drills that might foreshadow some kind of blockade of Taiwan if conflict broke out. However, unlike the crisis in the mid-1990s, Chinese forces did not stage amphibious exercises or appear to fly aircraft or sail vessels inside Taiwan's territorial waters. Uh, John Culver said on the Intelligence Matters podcast that nothing was done that would cause the Taiwanese to consider shooting back, shooting at Chinese forces. On top of these extensive military exercises, then Beijing levied economic sanctions on both Taiwanese firms and Speaker Pelosi. Taiwanese entities suffered cyber attacks uh, and Beijing announced the cancellation of multiple cooperative ventures with Washington, including military dialogues and climate talks. Therefore, this was the most tense and dangerous situation in the Taiwan Strait since the 1990s, but thankfully it didn't escalate further. Notably, the following week, the Chinese government released a new white paper on Taiwan, the first in over 20 years, which reaffirmed Beijing's commitment to resolving what it calls the Taiwan question and made clear how fundamental this is to China's core interests. So, Alan, what should we do here? How, how should we think about Beijing's reaction? Should we ask whether they overreacted or not? Or perhaps whether we're learning something about a potential invasion scenario? I guess what I'm asking is, you know, what did you learn from their response, if anything? Uh, well, I think that specialists uh, from the ADF and, and so on would have learned a lot in an intelligence sense from watching what was going on. But um, for, for me, the reaction was very predictable. I'm not certain of many things in international politics, as I said uh, before, contingency and chance always weigh heavily with me. But I've never doubted for a moment that Taiwan is central for Beijing. 
in that speech to the press club, which we'll come to next, the Chinese ambassador in Canberra stated as directly as anything else in his presentation, the view that there was no room for China to compromise on Taiwan. Now, if you believe, as I've heard lots of people around Canberra say, that the continuation of the CCP in power is the central objective of the government in Beijing, then the party's judgment is almost certainly that if it allowed Taiwan to become independent, it could no longer sustain its legitimacy with the Chinese people. So it's an existential matter for it. I, I thought comments that this was an overreaction were frankly ridiculous. The Chinese must have known that if they did nothing, it would have been taken by some observers as a sign of weakness and an encouragement to push the envelope further. Yeah, regardless of whether this was an overreaction, I still think it was disproportionate, especially the Japan angle. Um, and that tells me that we need to do more to reassure. However, I'm not persuaded that, but for the Pelosi visit, this escalation would not have happened at some point. The exercises the Chinese military undertook would have been planned long in advance. And I think eventually there would have been some excuse, some pretext to roll them out. This tells me that Beijing also has its own strategy to shift the status quo in China's favour, which strengthens my assessment that more must be done to deter. So again, we need more reassurance and more deterrence. I was impressed by how calm the Taiwanese people seemed throughout. But I do hope that this is also a spur for them to bolster their deterrent capabilities. I saw Jordan Schneider tweeting, I think yesterday, that Taiwan's semiconductor national champion, TSMC, actually spends more than double annually on capital expenditure than Taiwan spends on its military. But Darren, think about that. I mean, how much deterrence of China could the 24 million people on Taiwan possibly manage? Well, this is, I'm going to throw back at you what you said before, Alan. I'm not a strategist, so I don't actually know the answer. But you're right, it's an absolutely live question. I would say that the supposedly conventional wisdom about Russia's battlefield superiority over Ukraine seems to have been misplaced, and Russia didn't have to cross a body of water. Nothing about China wants here is easy, or it would have happened already. So deterrence has succeeded previously, but look, maybe indefinite deterrence is impossible. Or maybe indefinite deterrence is impossible, but successful defence would be possible. That, of course, would mean a war. Look, if listeners are, are interested, I'll post a couple of things in the show notes that dig into the military side of things. It's very complicated. Look, and, and, and for participants in the Australian debate, if you believe Taiwan's defence is futile, and that deterrence is futile, then it would be logical to say we should not try. Um, but please do say so explicitly, which to his credit, Hugh White does. Let's turn quickly then to the Australian government reaction. On the 3rd of August, um, when asked whether Pelosi's visit made the region less safe, Foreign Minister Penny Wong said on radio, quote, all parties should consider how they best contribute to de-escalating the current tensions and we all want peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, end quote. But she also said that the level of US engagement with Taiwan was a matter for the US. A couple of days later, 
Uh, Wong's office said in a media release that Australia was deeply concerned by China's launch of ballistic missiles, which were described as disproportionate and destabilizing. Uh, that same day, after meeting with her US and Japanese counterparts on the sidelines of the ASEAN foreign ministers meeting in Cambodia, the three foreign ministers issued a joint statement expressing grave concern about the PRC's actions, gravely affecting international peace and security, focusing again on the ballistic missiles landing in Japan's exclusive economic zone. Now, the Chinese embassy in Canberra did not appreciate any of this and released a statement criticising the joint statement in particular. When asked about this, Foreign Minister Wong urged restraint and de-escalation. The Australian opposition leader, Peter Dutton, said he was pleased Pelosi visited, though he would not have gone himself. And he did actually sort of call Taiwan an independent country, though I wonder perhaps whether he may have misspoken there. Alan, the Foreign Minister was very precise with her language, not explicitly endorsing Pelosi's visit, but coming down firmly on China's military response. Did she strike the right balance? And does Australia have many options here? I thought the balance was good and the language was disciplined. In those circumstances, you need to say what you want to say as clearly, calmly and precisely as possible. Um, just one further point here, which is to say that, it, that at uh, some time in the next six months, I think it would be very valuable for the Australian government to make a formal statement about its relationship with China. It's one of the things that's been missing from recent Australian policy towards China, and it is as important for our own policy processes as it is for the message it, uh, it sends to Beijing. You also asked me if uh, Australia had many options uh, here. Um, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My colleague at ANU, um, Ben Herskovich, writes an indispensable newsletter on Substack called Beijing to Canberra and Back, and I've recommended it several times on the podcast before. He conducts really granular analysis of both Canberra and Beijing's messaging, and he's concluded that the Albanese government's position on Taiwan seems to have four pillars, and I'm quoting him directly here. One, Canberra won't engage in hypotheticals about cross-strait conflict and Australia's involvement therein. Two, Australia's bipartisan one-China policy remains unchanged. Three, Australia supports the status quo and opposes unilateral changes to the status quo on a bipartisan basis. And four, Australia does not support Taiwanese independence. Now, Ben thinks the refusal to engage in hypotheticals, which is pillar one, and the explicit and repeated non-support of independence, which is pillar four, are distinct shifts from the previous government. Though I wonder whether these are more in the realm of tone rather than changes in interests. But the status quo is not static. Ben indeed calls it a rubbery concept, which just reflects the fact that the status quo has already changed so much in the past two decades, and both sides are trying to change it now. This suggests a need for language more specific than the status quo. To me, this is an area where we really want to be working with allies and partners, especially beyond Washington, starting, I think, with Japan. Could a group of like-minded governments set out a vision for a reasonable equilibrium in the Taiwan Strait? It wouldn't be one that Beijing likes, but hopefully it might be one Beijing could live with in the short term. And more importantly, would try to project 
a reasonable and grounded position to appeal to the rest of the region, the swing states, if you will, which brings me back to the goal of trying to broaden support for a deterrent against the use of force. I'm sorry, but I, I just can't get my mind around this. What, what would a vision of a reasonable equilibrium uh, look like? Uh, I don't think China cares about what anyone says about uh, who caused a war if it looked as though Taiwan was moving to an independent status supported by others, it would just attack. Um, and going back to what I said before, if US nuclear force is not a deterrent, and I do not believe it uh, it would be in the particular circumstances of a Taiwanese declaration of independence or other states recognising its sovereignty, then there's no deterrent available. So you need to look more at part two of your prescription uh, reassurance. I'd like to hear more about that. If there is no deterrent available, then reassurance doesn't matter. Uh, my strategy requires both to work uh, and work on both as needed. Um, okay, yeah, Alan, enough. you said if it looked like Taiwan was moving towards an independent status, China would attack. And that, you're right, is a question of reassurance. But it's also possible that China might be planning to attack regardless of what China does. And that brings us back to reassurance. So, look, I think we've, we've done this issue pretty extensively now and we're, we're coming back to ourselves. Like, it is really difficult. Um, that's why I built a model um, to begin with and why we've really gone into quite a bit of detail. Hopefully our listeners are still with us. Um, but, look, I, if in nothing else, hopefully this shows that this is not an issue which lends itself to tweets or even short-form blog posts. It really is very complex. But on that, let's move on um, and take an opportunity to update on Australia-China relations. Listeners will recall that the starting point for the new government's policy was a change in tone, but no change in Australia's interests. We had the early breakthrough of a meeting of defence ministers and then foreign ministers, but it was inevitable that frictions would arise, which we've seen with Taiwan. And right in the middle of all this, on the 10th of August this month, the Chinese ambassador in Canberra, Xiao Tian, gave a speech and took questions at the National Press Club just a week after the Pelosi visit. And that will be our focus. <laughs> I don't know if you realised, listeners, but the ABC live blogged the ambassador's speech. And I did a rough count and the live blog had almost 50 separate entries before it was closed for the day. I'm not even sure the Prime Minister's speeches that get that kind of attention. So quite remarkable and shows how important this was. Al, can you start off briefly by putting this type of speech and the questions by an ambassador um, in context or taking questions? Um, what can one potentially learn from what he has to say and how should we think about the limits on what he's able to say? Well, to begin with the bleeding obvious, uh, an ambassador is the representative of their government and should accurately convey the real position of that government. Uh, she or he is not a commentator or an academic or a freelancer. The skill uh, comes in knowing how to do this most effectively to the audience they have in front of them. Uh, I thought some of the critical commentary suggesting that Ambassador Shah could have loosened up the Chinese position. Why wasn't he just a bit nicer uh, about Taiwan? Was It was uh, deeply misplaced. Uh, I didn't see it live, but I watched it later, and it was uh, professionally and skillfully done, and let's not forget in a second language. It was a risky undertaking, but I thought it came off well. Well, there were no shortage of notable statements uttered by the ambassador, including, as you said earlier, Alan, 
that the Taiwan issue was non-negotiable. Um, also, that one could use their imagination to understand the scope of all necessary means that Beijing could use to resolve the Taiwan issue. He also said that the recent federal election in Australia offered an opportunity to reset bilateral ties and that Australia had made a solemn commitment to what he labelled the One China Principle, but which my colleague Ben Herskovich points out in his newsletter is a Chinese formulation and actually a misrepresentation of Australia's One China policy. Alan, what were your major takeaways from the substance of what the ambassador said? Oh, you've summarised them well. No, no backing down on Taiwan. But the overall message on the bilateral relationship, uh, contrary to some of the media reports, was calm and conciliatory and consistent with what he had said earlier about a hope for improvements. Uh, the questioning was feisty. Uh, for example, one of the reporters suggested that Shao's uh, statements that uh, Australia should handle the Taiwan question with caution uh, sounded like a threat. I don't know what quite what he was supposed to say. I agree. I'm pleased he did it and was willing to take media questions. And while we are often critical of Australia's media coverage of China, this deserved the attention it got. For example, I think the simple phrase that Taiwan is non-negotiable is important for Australians to hear since it forces us to grapple with what that means for our views on how to manage the relationship. As you've said, Alan, it's good we're talking again. Uh, the silence previously was untenable, but in many ways the hard part now begins. Australia has shifted tone. China has signalled it is willing to talk, but our disagreements are as stark as ever. So what do we do now? Can we manage those disagreements? And can we find areas to cooperate? This is not just a challenge for the government, mind you, but those of us who are watching on, reading tweets and op-eds on the speech, it struck me that the commentary was probably pretty easy, straightforward for Australian observers to write because it boiled down to this speech proves to us that China is very different to Australia and our disagreements are fundamental. And no matter how slick the ambassador's presentation is, it's a stark difference. And you had those who wanted to debate the meaning of specific words and phrases and what it might mean or not mean for our understanding of China's intentions. And sometimes, regrettably, this regressed into personal attacks, which, of course, Australia-China Twitter is notorious for. But to me, none of this conversation, public debate, represents much progress. We all know the basic contours of the relationship and who and what both sides are. What we need now are creative ideas for what next, given the tight constraints on the relationship. And that will require original and substantive empirical work, not just 280 characters or 800 word op-eds. So that's my challenge um, to me, to you, Alan, and to all of our listeners. Please, let's, let's look, try and do some more deep dives. For example, I would like to know more about how China and the US are each perceived across the region, among the public, among elites and policymakers, um, and on specific issues. And that gives me an opportunity to, to recommend a recent piece of research that was conducted by my ANU colleagues, Ben Herskovich again, and, and Dirk van der Klee, along with Gata Priandita, published uh, through Carnegie, which looks at how Chinese firms like Huawei have successfully used localization strategies to become trusted cybersecurity partners in Indonesia. So very insightful and interesting work. More like this, please, and fewer tweets, I say. But let's move on now, Alan, 
as a deep dive, we've got to prevent ourselves getting the bends coming back up to the surface. I, I, I think, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take off my tinfoil hat and I'll step down from my soapbox and but but move into something maybe even more self-indulgent because this podcast is now four years and 100 episodes old. We've been downloaded over 310,000 times and count Australia's foreign minister among our regular listeners. So, Alan, can you offer a couple of reflections on your experience over the past four years? Um, as I said to the minister last week, when you first came to me with this proposal uh, four years ago, I was very pleased to join you. I was already a big fan of podcasts and, you know, increasingly I like the medium, but I wasn't at all convinced that we'd find an audience for a regular discussion of Australian foreign policy, but it's been great to find so many listeners here and overseas who share our interests. It's also been wonderful to work with you as a scholar of international relations, uh, who is also, how can I put this gently for my own purposes, a member of a different age demographic, uh, Darren. I've always worked closer to the border between policy and scholarship than many practitioners. Um, you know, that's places like ONA and the, and the Lowy Institute. And I've not always, but usually found that interaction beneficial to both sides. So I've been reminded of the importance of structure in international relations, and you've certainly forced me to tidy up my own loose thinking on lots of the uh, issues and events we've debated. So thank you. It's also been a huge pleasure to assert the importance of foreign policy in statecraft, and uh, which has been you know, much of the work of my life, and to know that there are people out there who are listening. Uh, and final point, Darren, as a result of our partnership, I am now much better informed about popular culture. So thank you for the Mandalorian in particular, and more to come, I <laughs> Well, thank you, Alan. I'm pleased I was able to bring baby Yoda into your life. Thinking back, my primary motivation for starting the podcast or suggesting it to you was that I wanted to know what someone with your knowledge and experience thought about the news each week. I found it frustrating that distinguished members of the foreign policy commentariat would do these public events every now and then on campus at ANU and take do a speech and take a handful of questions. And if I was lucky, I might get to ask one. But I had more questions. And I hoped they might be good ones. And so I'm pleased that this logic worked out. I've learned so much from your knowledge and wisdom and experience, Alan. You've seen it all before. And I think foreign policy is one of those domains where crystallized intelligence, which you could think of as experience and wisdom, is relatively more important given the constrained and institutional nature of the enterprise. Populists and iconoclasts come along and think that they can shake things up but they almost always fail because structural forces are just too strong. But I've also been surprised and thrilled to find my own theorist's voice. What I do on the podcast is what I do in the classroom and in my research, try to build models because we need to simplify reality in order to describe, understand and communicate it. But there are of course more and less useful ways of doing this simplification. And I think that being explicit about it helps improve the process in part because it opens you up to criticism. We all simplify. We all build and apply models in our lives, especially when it comes to international affairs. 
they're too complex to grapple with otherwise. And so I've been both surprised and gratified that listeners from time to time, at least find my explicit efforts to theorize useful, even when they disagree. Okay, Alan, final segment, reading, listening, and watching. What do you have for us this week? As you said before, Darren, the issues we've been talking about today are certainly not ones that lend themselves to social media or 800-word opinion pieces. Uh, There's been a torrent of writing on China and Taiwan. It's hard to think of a pundit who hasn't opined on the matter at some point in the last few weeks. But I want to nominate just one uh, book and one article Kevin Rudd's newly released uh, The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the US and Xi Jinping's China is a great place to begin. Our former Prime Minister analyses the way the US and China think about each other from the perspective of someone who knows both places well. He then describes the core priorities of Xi Jinping and ends with a careful and persuasive argument that a way out of conflict, which he calls uh, managed strategic competition, is available and should be tried. There are few former political leaders who can combine so well thoughtful analysis with the lived experience of a policymaker who has known so many of the actors in the in the game. Uh, and for a shorter but also insightful take uh, from an American academic, I recommend uh, Jessica Chen Weiss's article, The China Trap, US Foreign Policy and the Perilous Logic of Zero-Sum Competition, which appears in uh, Foreign Affairs. Uh, Jessica Chen Weiss is a fine scholar and a professor at Cornell, And she recently spent a year with the policy planning staff in the State Department, which is one of the reasons I found this article uh, interesting. She talks about a danger, which I think is relevant here as well as in America, that the desire to avoid appearing soft on China permeates private and public uh, policy discussions in, in the United States. The result, she says, and I'm quoting her, is an echo chamber that encourages analysts, bureaucrats and officials to be politically rather than analytically correct when individuals feel the need to outhawk one another to protect themselves and advance professionally. The result is uh, is groupthink. Thanks, Alan. I'm going to go more in the direction of The Mandalorian with my recommendation, uh, although it's not as good as The Mandalorian, or at least not as purely entertaining. Um, The show is Sandman. Uh, It's a new Netflix series based on very famous and highly regarded comics by Neil Gaiman. Um, It's a 10-part series. It's quite weird, um, but it's very entertaining. And I really, in particular, appreciated the courage of the showrunners to veer off what is usually a tight narrative path and spend entire episodes exploring deep philosophical questions of only tangential relevance to the overall story, That's quite something for a um, 10-part series. It is violent and quite grotesque at times, though, especially towards the end of the series, so you do need the stomach for that. But it was definitely worth a watch. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We bid farewell to Annabelle Howard and thank her so much for all her help. And welcome Atika Meki and thank her for audio editing today. And thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, of which... 100 episodes in, I find myself (laughs) quite fond.
Thank you all and talk to you again soon.